we hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, thank you for joining us on another episode of Women Worth Knowing. We're so excited that you could join us, and we mm-hmm. have got a very, very interesting woman to talk about, and a woman mm-hmm. that is definitely worth knowing. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. Jasmine's going to bring us this one because this is one of Jasmine's favorite women, isn't it? Yeah, she is. And it's, yeah, something a little bit different. I mean, we've been going through, you know, uh, early church, medieval times, all of those eras. And so now we come to, like, I don't know, one of my favorite time periods. And that is the Reformation. And so um, we have a gal that I definitely think is important to talk about. You might recall, as we've been talking about the women in the Middle Ages, um, including several of the mystics, um, you may have noticed some of these gals, especially Catherine of Siena, who we talked about previously, they really wanted church reform because the medieval church was so corrupt. And the Pope, other leaders, they had totally lost sight of, of Jesus, the gospel message. They were really caught up in building an earthly empire. And Well, not oh, only that, but so bad. The popes themselves were corrupt. I mean, some Very. of them had children. The office could be bought. Yep, bought and sold. It was practice called simony back then. And That's so right. there was, I mean, there was just, it was such a mess. And so there was a lot, there were a lot of people uh, that had started just calling for reform and for change. And as some of you may know, they finally, all of these people calling out for reform, finally found their voice in the 16th century through a man named Martin Luther, a familiar figure. He became the father of the Protestant Reformation, uh, really one of the most significant figures, not just in church history, but in Western history as a whole. And of course, we don't want to get way into that because that's his story more than hers, but <laughs> his wife's. But I think even though everybody's probably heard of Martin Luther, not everyone has heard of his wife, Kate. And so that's who I want to talk about today. Katie Luther, her maiden name was Katharina von Bora. So Katie was born in uh, January of 1499 on a country estate in Saxony. And uh, she was born to an impoverished knight and his wife. And her mom died in 1505 when she was only six years old and her dad found himself. He was in serious financial trouble. So he remarried soon after, but um, his new wife didn't have a dowry, just a lot more children. And so (laughs) from her previous marriage. And so all of these children meant more mouths to feed, more space required. And so uh, at the age of six, Katie was actually sent to a Benedictine convent for her education. I guess her dad did want to give her a good education. That was something that he took into account. But also, again, there was just a lot of financial constraints. That happened a lot with families. And then when she was 10, she was sent on from there to a Cistercian nunnery in Saxony called Gottes und Marienthron, which means God and Mary's throne, which is weird and unbiblical. But anyway, it was um, because it was Cistercian, it was very plain, very austere, a little bit on the gloomy side, but it was cheaper than the Benedictine nunneries. So that's why her dad ended up sending her there. So, I mean, this was rough. You got to imagine here she's this little girl not having any say in the matter, not knowing what's going on. And she gets separated from her family as soon as her mom dies. And so just this traumatic kind of childhood and sad and lonely. And she's in a convent. And whether she wanted it or not, she's just thrown into this life. And You know, I I wonder um, if Luther was thinking of his wife's experience because later he wrote to the Holy Roman Emperor and said, it is very shameful that children, especially defenseless women and young girls, are pushed into the nunneries. Shame on the unmerciful parents who treat their own so cruelly. Now, I I do have to say, yeah, that was one perspective for sure uh, that people were not taking into account. But there were sometimes extenuating circumstances like poverty and 
Uh, and many women actually preferred monastic life in that day. Um, one commentator made a really interesting point and something for us to consider as we're looking at this time period. Think of this in, you know, with some of the women we've looked at in the medieval times and even again during the Reformation period. And, and he said, in those days, the life of a nun was more prestigious than that of a married woman for one reason, because of their nobility, and for another, and above all, because they were called, quote, the Virgin Brides of Christ. And although it was not their own decision to enter a convent, many girls of the aristocracy preferred the life in a nunnery to that in a castle or on the parents' estate. The cloister offered protection, security, not only against poverty and illness, but also against sinful sexuality and premature death from multiple childbirth. Furthermore, as a novice or a nun, a young girl could not be forced to marry a man she didn't love, a man who the parents had chosen who might mistreat her and for material reasons would want her to give birth to a child every year. And let's, so that's let's talk important about, to talk about. Yes. Yeah. And also, too, women in those days did not have any defense against Nothing. an abusive husband. Yes, exactly. And husbands, it was legal to abuse yep. their wives. Yep. And, of course, you know, we've talked about that in other podcasts, that that's why the temperance union was formed, because right. they felt like they had no defense against men beating their wives. So yeah. it, they felt like, well, if we can keep them from drinking and yeah. getting drunk, maybe we could help with the abuse. Yeah. So, I mean, through the centuries, exactly. Through the centuries, we see this kind of recurring right. issue that right. would creep into society. And, I mean, the Middle Ages were definitely one of those time periods where really this was, being in a convent was one of the only ways a woman could experience kind of a semblance of freedom, which sounds funny to us because they're like, well, yeah, but they're cloistered away from the world. Yeah, but they're protected mm -hmm. and safe from abuse, mm -hmm. like you're saying, on so many right. levels. And so whatever the case may be, whether this was a positive or a negative for some women, it was wonderful. For some women, they didn't prefer that. But one cool thing is that Luther really um, defended young women. I mean, that's pretty remarkable for that era that he would see where very this much. could be a problem. I mean, he was really big on women's education. So he was very revolutionary on many levels. Um, so apparently, Katie, in that convent, she was very faithful, very diligent novitiate. Uh, later, she said that she prayed feverishly, diligently, and frequently while she was living at the convent. And so when she was 16, she took her monastic vows and became a full-fledged nun. And she was given a lot of duties. This was a, a, you know, a pretty large convent estate. Most of the convents had a lot of land. Um, they had livestock and um, you know, a lot of property and a lot of things to manage. And so that taught her how to tend to a vast amount of property. And she probably didn't think about it, but this would be beneficial to her in the future, as we shall see. So um, a couple years later, in 1517, Katie was now 18 years old. That was the year that Martin Luther posted his revolutionary 95 Theses, which is a very famous event uh, in church history and again in Western history. So he posts the 95 Theses which is, in Wittenberg. Which is, right. And it was the 95 Theses was the things that the Catholic Church were was doing that were unbiblical. Yes. So yeah. it's 95 things. One of them was the selling of indulgences. That was the, that was a biggie. That was what really sparked him to do mm -hmm. this. You know. So that. in other words, what the Catholic Church was doing at that time was saying, look, if you want to sin for a certain <laughs> amount of money, you can sin and be forgiven and not have it count against you, and you won't have to work it off in purgatory. Mm -hmm. So this is something, again, that she said that, uh, because I think a lot of people hear about the 95 Thesis yeah. and the Wittenberg Door. These yeah. are all phrases, but a lot of people don't even know what those mean. Right, and what he was actually trying to do. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And he was pushing back against these practices, which were, which were completely unbiblical, right. and just bringing money into the church, really. Now, it's important, too, that you know, too, that before this, you know, we're talking about uh, Katharina, that she was a nun, but Martin Luther was a 
monk. monk. Yes. So he had also taken vows, like I'm not going to marry vows mm-hmm. of celibacy. And mm-hmm. it's during this kind of wake up call as he's reading the book of Romans mm-hmm. that the just shall live by faith. And as he begins to explore the the idea of being justified by faith rather than by works, mm-hmm. because the Catholic Church was promoting works and the common people didn't have the Bible, so they didn't know better. And so he's thinking two things, like I want to get the Bible to the common people so they can have the word of God. Um, and Because it was revolutionizing his life and he knew it would revolutionize the lives of others. Mm-hmm. So I think a little background about Martin Luther is helpful yeah. because he begins to come to the realization that even the celibacy and uh, calling men to be celibate and to treat that like that's more godly. Yeah, than monastic life. Yeah. Right. Then someone who's married, he begins to even have objections to that yeah. for others. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. For others. And so exactly. That's a great lead in because in the early 1520s, he starts writing these religious tracts and they're starting to get published. The printing press was now in full swing. And that was a new development that really advanced the Reformation. And so there's all these tracts getting produced on a lot of different theological topics, especially salvation by faith instead of works and all of that. Sola Scriptura, the scripture being the authority. And these things were not available to the common people. Right. I mean, like the so works, the ancient works, like by Augustine, Augustine and, and these, other these guys, right, yeah. they couldn't be read by the common people, one, because of the language barrier. They were written in Latin. And so a lot of people couldn't read that. Mm-hmm. And so as they begin to translate these and put these in tracts, and especially the Gutenberg Bible, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. biggie. Yeah. That um, when they, the first thing that Gutenberg did when he invented the printing press was to do the Bible. Right. And he did it in German. And yeah. that was like. So Luther does that. Well, German, Luther does the German translation. Translation. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that exactly. And so all of these things are being produced in German. And that's mm-hmm. important to note as well because that's the language of the people. And so Luther also wrote about uh, the monastic life, like Cheryl was mentioning there, the merit and, and the fact that nuns, priests, monks could go back out into society and get married. They could serve God in any context. And he did actually say at one point, he's fine if people want to stay in the monastic life as long as they understand that their salvation is by faith. But hey, if you feel called to leave and go get a job and just live out in the community, get married, have kids, you can totally serve God as well. So these tracts begin to circulate, and they really bore witness with the hearts of many nuns and monks. And so they start abandoning the monastic life to follow, uh, you know, follow God's word and follow what Luther was teaching about salvation by faith. And uh, they're renouncing their vows, um, getting jobs. Like I said, it totally created a lot of chaos in society because it changed the whole um, dynamic as all of these people are coming out of the convents and monasteries. And so all of this excitement eventually reached Marienthron, Marienthron, where um, Luther's writings somehow got smuggled into some sympathetic nuns. There were a couple of nuns at the convent who were sympathetic to Luther. One gal, her, I think her brother-in-law was a good friend of Luther's. And so there's these connections here. We don't know exactly how it happened, but Katie and 11 other women uh, who were exposed to Luther's writings and, you know, really seeing the Bible really in a new light for the first time, really getting to read for themselves what the scriptures said and and how, you know, his words really reflected what the Bible taught. I mean, they were just so excited. They wanted to go and live by faith for the Lord too in a new way. And they got eager to leave the convent. And so uh, at first what the women did was, well, which makes sense. This is what they tried to do first. They wrote to their families and they said, hey, could you take me out of here? (laughs) Please get me out of this, you know, cloistered life. Um, and they knew this would be really hard. They, they weren't expecting this to be easy or anything, but they just really felt like called to leave. 
Um, but most of the parents either couldn't afford to take them out, which is what had happened to uh, Katie's parents. Um, and then some of them were afraid to um, take their daughters out because uh, the ruler of that region of Saxony, Duke George, he was very anti-Reformation. By now, Luther had started to make waves. And so he had a lot of enemies. And so they didn't really want to create any problems. And so really in desperation, the nuns wrote to Luther himself. And they said that, uh, quote, they felt compelled to find salvation for their souls and consciences. And then they pleaded him to help, uh, help them escape because it was a very well-guarded facility. I mean, you couldn't just go in and out of the convent. It wasn't like that. There was, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't quite like the Nazis where you had like a tower and they were like sniper shooting people, but you really could be punished with death if you got caught trying to leave. It was really weird. And so uh, one biographer said it was a wailing letter of distress in which they poured out their hearts and asked the reformer to provide comfort, counsel, and help. So they sent the letter to Martin with this guy uh, named Leonard Coppa. He was a, a merchant who sold herring to the convent. And he herring was a friend of being Luther's. fish. Yes, fish. <laughs> a fish merchant. And so Luther gets this letter and he feels so bad for these women, like genuinely sorry for them. And so he said, well, gosh, what can I do but help them? I mean, you know, my writings have kind of sparked this, so I want to help. And so he wrote and said, it is a great misery. I am sorry to say that they permit children to enter the cloister where there's no daily practice of the word of God, and they seldom or never hear the gospel rightly preached. This is reason enough to have these persons pulled out of the cloister and snatched away by any means possible. For God is not pleased with any worship unless it comes freely from the heart, and consequently no vow is valid unless it has been made willingly with love. And so he really saw, like, they have a genuine heart for, for Jesus, and they want to grow in the things of God. They can't do that in the convent. That's, you know, that's not the place for them. So with Copa, um, Luther decided to help make a plan for the nuns escape. And Copa loved this idea. He saw it as like a divine liberation for these women. So he said, I am totally on board. And it was dangerous for him to, for both of them to take part in this. So there was an older nun uh, named Magdalene von Staupitz. Um, and she was actually one of uh, Katie's relatives and sister of Luther's mentor, Johann. So there's quite a connection here. And so she kind of became the ringleader because she was older. I think she was like in her late 40s, early 50s. And so she helped arrange for their escape in Copa's wagon on Easter Eve. And they decided to leave on the night before Easter because um, preoccupied. I guess they, everybody was preoccupied. Exactly. This was outside of the normal routine. They didn't have their normal prayers that day and stuff. So this created a better chance to sneak away uh, undetected. And so and this was a really big deal for these nuns, you know, I mean, it's kind of a fun little story. But like I said, it could mean uh, prison or death if they were caught. It was against the law. Totally against and, the law. Uh, against a canon law. It was kind of like slavery. If you were caught Very with crazy. Yep. one of these women, you could be arrested. Yep. And, you know, so if you were caught aiding one of these women, you could be arrested. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a serious thing. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. That Martin Luther is attempting to do and that Copa is willing to do with him. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also kind of, you know, just to give a perspective check, one of Katie's biographers said, you know, for the first time in their adult lives, these women were making a decision on their own. Mm -hmm. We don't even realize. I mean, right. they've been forced into every decision. Everybody's made every decision for them all their lives. And now they're taking a stand. And so they were very nervous. Yes. <laughs> this was a really big deal for all of these girls. So um, Copa was able to smuggle them out. But um, let's talk about it. Oh. He's got a wagon. Yes. He's and got the he wagon. delivers the herring fish mm -hmm. to the convent. So he's coming in with his delivery of fish, right, mm -hmm. for the convent. And he's going to deliver fish to other places. And they've got all these barrels of fish. Now, I had heard that they hid in barrels, but you said no. I thought that too. No, 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 it's true, Cheryl, because I always heard that story yes, and that thought, they oh, they were in the, the fish barrels, yes. but 
I don't that know. That would be they really did, stinky. That would be really But that's miserable. probably why people didn't check. <laughs> exactly. Because they knew he was a fish merchant. smell, right? Oh, herring, So you're yeah. going to stay <laughs> Oh, herring, yes. But you're going to stay away from those barrels. You're going to just like, thank you for the fish. Yep. Carry See on. You. Right. Exactly. So then these women sneak aboard mm-hmm. this wagon. And yes. how many women were there? So there were 12 that originally wow. got that's out. Quite- I know. That's a lot. They really had to cram in there. I know. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. But that's exactly why. So whether they were in the barrels or not, the, the point was that he was able to get them covered under the pretense of carrying fish. Mm-hmm. And so he gets them out. Um, three of them, he actually dropped off with their families in the town of Torgau. So there were actually a couple of them who were able to go home. But the other nine were taken to Luther because it was like, well, I, we don't know where else to take them. And he said, you know, just get these girls out of here. So uh, and he happened to be living in a large, nearly abandoned Augustinian monastery at the time at Wittenberg. And so there were some rooms there and it was like, okay, well, there's a place for them to stay, I guess. There's a quote. Were you going to use that quote? Mm. A wagon load of Vestal virgins has just come to town. (laughs) This is one of uh, Luther's students wrote this. Oh my gosh. A wagon load of Vestal virgins has just come to town, all more eager for marriage than for life. God grant them (laughs) husbands lest worse befall. I love it. (laughs) That's great. That pretty much captures it. Yes. So uh, Luther welcomes these women in, and he said to Coppa and some of the other helpers, he wrote them a letter, and he said, You have done a new work that will be remembered by the country and the people. You have liberated these poor souls from the prison of human tyranny at just the right time. Easter, when Christ liberated the prison that held his own. Um, one fun fact here, though, this is kind of cool. The abbess, uh, the gal who was in charge at Marian Throne, the convent, she actually got saved six or seven years later. Wow. And turned the convent into like an evangelical facility. So it taught the scriptures. They taught salvation by faith. So it's actually kind of cool. There was still, you know, a remnant even in the That's Catholic. fantastic. Yeah, I yes. know. So now Luther is kind of given the task of finding a place for these poor women. Not an easy task. Um, for one thing, they weren't necessarily trained for any specific job. One historian said all they could do was pray and sing. (laughs) (laughs) And then remember, some of their families um, lived in territory that was owned by hostile Duke George, so they couldn't go back into those areas. And then as for marriage, like Cheryl said, a lot of them wanted to get married. But at that time, most German girls were married at 15 or 16. And so these gals who are like in their 20s, some a little older than that, it was going to be a little bit more of a challenge to get them husbands. So Luther told a friend, I feel so sorry for them. They're just a wretched little bunch. (laughs) But fortunately, he was well-connected with the townspeople of Wittenberg. So they all pitched in, were able to find uh, work and lodgings for all the gals. And for most of them, they were able to get husbands, actually. (laughs) Except for one, of course, Katerina Fombora. But I did read that she had two marriage proposals. She did. So there was nothing wrong with her. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, let's be clear here. Yes. She wasn't beautiful, but her biographer said she was a decisive person with a kind face, frank expression, and she was not flirtatious. Mm -hmm. She was a no-nonsense woman who could be trusted. And she had a great personality. She was very witty. Um, She had strong character and strong faith. I mean, she really uh, was quite a woman of God. And so, you know, that made her attractive. In fact, she won the main person. Yeah, like you said, two proposals. But the main guy was this aristocrat from Nuremberg. And they totally fell in love with each other. Uh, His name was Jerome Baumgartner. And he loved her. But his family would never consent to him marrying a runaway nun, especially one who didn't have any money. And so the young man 
left and broke Katie's heart. Mm -hmm. And she actually kept writing to him for quite a while. And then Luther jumped in and he was trying to negotiate with the guy like, hey, come on, this is perfect. He really thought this was a great match. And so he wrote and said, if you want to hold on to your Kate von Bora, you'd better hurry up before she's given to some other suitor who is on hand. Until now, she has not gotten over her love for you. And I would be very pleased if the two of you were to be united with one another. So, I mean, he's putting in a good word, trying to persuade the guy. Unfortunately, he ended up doing what his parents wanted and he married a rich girl. But it's interesting, and this is just uh, to help us understand the times, Martin and Katie never were bitter about this. They never held it against him because that's just how it was back then. You know, people married for money and to, you know, have stability and position. And so it was just one of those things. In fact, it's kind of funny because years later, Luther was writing a letter to uh, the Nuremberg Council. And I don't know if Baumgartner was part of the council or something, but he joked about how Katie had loved him years ago. And so I guess it was just water under the bridge. No big deal. It was never an issue. So... Um, Katie ended up living with a family called the Cranachs at this time. And uh, Lucas Cranach, he was a painter, and he actually ended up doing the portraits we have of Martin and Katie. So if you've ever seen any of the portraits of them, uh, they were done by Lucas Cranach. He painted all kinds of family scenes and all kinds of stuff. So he was really close friends with them. Uh, He was also Luther's publisher, and he became, it's kind of funny, he became really prosperous because he published all of Luther's writings, and Luther never wanted money from any of his works. And so Lucas ended up just becoming really rich. (laughs) But he always took care of Martin and Katie. He was a really faithful friend. So, you know, Katie's living with the Cranachs and doing well. She's hanging in there. um, But Luther did not want to give up on matchmaking for her. He's like, man, I've got a really good batting average here with all of these other nuns. I've got to get a husband for you. And so uh, he himself wasn't interested in her, first of all, because uh, he thought she was snobby and proud. Um, And also he was more interested in one of the other nuns. Her name was Ave, but he didn't want to get married. I mean, he thought he, he liked her, but he was really unwilling to get married for for spiritual reasons in his own mind, you know, just being set That's, apart, but also was, practical. Right. He was persecuted. Yes, and exactly. And he didn't want to bring a woman into that same kind of person. It would have to be such a strong woman. Yes. To be able to stand and withstand, you know, all the assaults from the church at that time yeah, yeah. and from other people. Yes. You know. So, yes, exactly. He was considered a heretic. And yeah. so. And there was a bounty happen. on him for a while, too. Yeah. So you can imagine he's thinking marriage is not even an mm-hmm. option for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. Be a liability. Yeah. Well, that too. Exactly. And so Ave ended up marrying somebody else. And he was fine with that because, again, it mm-hmm. just wasn't really something important to him that he thought was a priority. And so for Katie, <laughs> like I said, he kept trying to find someone for her. And so he had in mind this 60-year-old professor and pastor named Kasper Glatz. Uh, and this was definitely not what Katie had in mind. Um, I guess he didn't have great character. She could kind of see through him. But Martin just thought she was being a snob and couldn't afford to be picky at this point. And so she went and told Luther's friend, uh, Nicholas von Amsdorf. She said, look, I'm not against pastors and professors. It's not like that. I'm not a snob. And she said, you know what? I would marry you. She said this to Nicholas. I would marry you or Luther if you asked me. It's not That's not the issue. But then she said, if I can't marry one of you, actually, I'm going to just stay single for the rest of my life. So she was super strong. in her opinion and said, this is how it is. And this gets back to Luther. And this was really good timing because there were rumors now spreading about all the nuns at his house, especially Katie being the only one left. Um, And his parents had started really urging him. They were like, hey, you've broken with your monastic vows. Why don't you carry on the family name? And he realized, you know what? I've been teaching that celibacy uh, should not be exalted above marriage.
marriage. It's not a higher call. Marriage is a gift from God and a blessing. Maybe I need to actually practice what I preach. And so he wrote and said that his marriage would please his father, rile the Pope, make angels laugh and devils weep and seal his testimony. And that's such a great reason to get married. Absolutely. So (laughs) he said, if I can arrange it, I will marry Kate in defiance of the devil. And so even though marriage had never been on his radar, within a year, Martin and Katie were married. June of 1525, Martin was 41 and she was 26. And they got married really quick because he thought he was going to get burned at the stake within a year. So he's like, well, we better at least get an heir so that my dad will be happy and then I'll die. So (laughs) um, according to friends, Katie was still on the rebound from her heartbreaking romance. And Martin even said, I'm not madly in love with her, but I cherish her. And he said he felt sorry for her and he married her out of compassion. But I love what their biographer said. This conveys a sense of love with a deeper, more profound meaning than that of merely feeling sorry for a person. He loved her with compassion, which perhaps opened the way to a growing attraction. And for Katie, Katerina chose Luther because she saw in him the liberator and knew no other person she could trust so completely. This feeling of security stayed with her and was at the same time a profound form of love. But even more so, getting to know Luther as he really was awakened in Katie a love that was similar to Martin's feeling of compassion. For these reasons, it's no wonder that this marriage, which was not based on self-interest or expediency, turned out so well. So they ended up having quite a foundation. And we can't wait to tell you (laughs) how exciting their life is. Yes. Because it's definitely not a happily ever after story, but it's a fascinating, used by God Mm -hmm. tremendously story. So that's all we have time for in this first half. So we hope we're leaving you with a cliffhanger. Yes. And we're coming back next week with the second half of Katerina von Bora Luther. Luther. (laughs) So... We also wanted to say we want you to get in touch with us, um, and you can write us at wwk at cccm.com. That's right. We want to hear from you. A lot of you have asked for Rosalind Goforth. Yes, she is in the future. I think I've got more requests for her. We've got a lot for her. Yeah, I think that's a sign. Yes, (laughs) we think it's a sign. I love her, and I can't wait to do that one in some weeks coming up pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Um, But we want you to send us. We want to start featuring stories of people in your life, whether a mother, a sister, a neighbor, a friend, someone who has meant something to you, even if it's just a short little story, please write us. Mm -hmm. We'd like to feature them on Women Worth Knowing. So don't keep those women to yourself. Yeah, Write us. (laughs) So until next week, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut saying thank you for joining us this week, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut.